Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Singularity Weblog. This is our second Singularity podcast, and tonight I have Michael Anisimov, who will be our guest tonight. Hello, Michael. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Nicola. Very good. Excellent. So I would jump right in, and I would ask Michael to introduce himself, and maybe he can share with us a little bit about uh, what his background is, maybe his education, and most interestingly, how he got to be interested in the technological singularity and how he got involved in the Singularity Institute. All right. Well, uh, I've been interested in advanced technology since the age of about maybe like eight or nine, basically my entire life. Uh, I read the book Nano by Ed Regis in, um, let's see, 96 it was, and uh, that helped turn me on to the possibilities of advanced technology to really like change the game board of the world, uh, make fundamental differences that would change, uh, would be unprecedented in history, change human interaction, change our capabilities, that sort of thing. So for my teenagehood, I followed Eric Drexler in the Forest Studies Institute, and I was very interested in nanotechnology, and I still am today. Um, and when I was about 18 or 17, I read um, The Age of Furious Tool Machines by Kurzweil, and I thought that was a really inspiring book because it synthesized together a lot of different technological trends and kind of came up with an overall philosophy of how to approach these changes and I think it, it dignified these the changes in society that are happening due to technology with a philosophy because I think it really does deserve one. Um, so when I was still in high school I co-founded the Immortality Institute which was basically an online organization devoted to uh, analyzing uh, life extension and advocating life extension as a cause. Um, and continued on in, with a Immortality Institute. Uh, took a few classes uh, at City College of San Francisco in computer science, but uh, I kept being pulled away by nonprofit work and writing, so I decided to drop out of college and pursue a career as a science writer and a nonprofit administrator. So I began writing short articles for a website called wiseek.com, which is a really popular question and answer site on the internet. And I was basically the main guy that was in charge of their answering their science questions. So I got to make up my own science questions and answer them. And I wrote over hmm. uh, 1,500 articles on uh, short science questions like what is a black hole or what is molecular nanotechnology, that kind of thing. And uh, all throughout that time, I volunteered for World Transhumanist Association and the Foresight Institute and Immortality Institute, which I helped found, and the Singularity Institute. And uh, about a couple of years ago, I joined the Singularity Institute full-time, and my role is basically that of a popularizer. Uh, I write a blog, I put out press releases, I my goal is to make the public better aware of the issues surrounding uh, advanced artificial intelligence and the possibility of achieving intelligence greater than human intelligence, which I consider to be the number one issue of our time. And uh, I co-organize the Singularity Sign. Yeah, maybe now is the moment for me to ask you about your particular personal definition of the technological singularity, because there's a variety of different definitions out there competing. And it seems to me that every 
uh, scientist or person in the field tends to embrace one shade or color of it versus another. Thus, it may make more sense if you start by telling us what exactly, in your opinion, is the technological singularity? Well, I mean, I think the singularity is best defined by the 1992 paper by Werner Vinge, which basically stated that it is the creation of smarter than human intelligence. And I consider all deviations from that original definition to be... Mm, I mean, to, to be violating the original definition, essentially. And because the singularity has become a really popular concept, it's snowballed with a lot of people who are trying to jump on the bandwagon of talking about it. But to speak about the original definition is just merely smarter than human intelligence. And uh, it doesn't have necessarily anything to do with... Um, it only has to do with AI insofar as AI is one possible path to smarter than human intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the definition that I specifically like to use to make it more specific is a being smarter than humans as we are smarter than um, one of our immediate ancestors, Homo heidelbergensis, which I think uh, it's, it's a recent ancestor of our, of humanity. And so that uh, was a species that lived about, uh, 300, 400,000 years ago and um, made stone tools might be comparable to Neanderthals and in intelligence. Uh, the reason why I picked that is because they're actually thought to be our direct ancestors, whereas Neanderthals, uh, there's some controversy on that. But uh, I would consider even a form of biological intelligence enhancement that produced a qualitatively more intelligent being as the a technological singularity having been achieved. That's very interesting. So uh, do you think that the difference between us and that potential artificial intelligence would actually be um, many times more than the difference between us and our predecessors? Uh, I think that if we it were artificial intelligence, then yes, we could expect a larger difference. Um, artificial intelligence would most likely tend to be very stupid at a lot of things and exceptional at a narrow range of things, just like how computers are today. But yeah. um, for there to be true artificial intelligence, it would need to be able to compete with human beings in more areas. So if it were artificial intelligence, I don't think it would be that mild of an upgrade. I think it would be more discontinuous and, and abrupt of a intelligence improvement, whereas with biological, it would be more gradual. So do you think that the Turing test would be the benchmark or do you have a, your own or, or, or an alternative suggestion for a benchmark that we know that we have reached that point? Yeah, I think the Turing test is just a first guess at a benchmark and it um, was a useful contribution to thinking about AI for its time. But um, what I want to see would be more like uh, – performance metrics on a wide variety of toy problems, that kind of thing, not something that can be simply like summarized in a few sentences. I, uh, I think it would be yeah. have to have be something where you see it and you'd evaluate based on, uh, on what you see from uh, a lot of test results. Michael is also a very popular blogger, and um, I would like to ask him to share with us um, how the whole blog came about. Did you start the blog before you actually got involved with the Singularity Institute or was the, singu uh, or was the Singularity Institute first and then you started the blog? 
Uh, the Singularity Institute was first. Uh, I joined as a volunteer in 2001, so it's coming on a decade now, and I actually started the blog partially uh, as an excuse to talk about the Singularity Institute and the mission that we're up to. And uh, would you mind telling our listeners how they can discover your blog and also the website of the Singularity Institute? Sure. Uh, you can just put Accelerating Future into Google and uh, the first result should be my blog. Uh, so that's at acceleratingfuture.com backslash Michael backslash blog. And the uh, URL of the Singularity Institute is singinst.org, S-I-N-G-I-N-S-T dot org. Now, of course, I would also post direct links um, after this podcast straight to both of those sites. So that wouldn't be a problem. Uh, but it, it's nice for people just to know how to find you. Um, so let's move on a little bit and talk about the broad purpose of the Singularity Institute and how it fits within the general theme of the Singularity. What is the purpose? What is the goal? What are your benchmarks of accomplishment? And how do you see uh, the Institute develop in the next several years, in your opinion? The purpose of the Singularity Institute is to be the organization that cares about the singularity as an event that can potentially be um, directed to benefit humanity rather than destroy or threaten humanity. Um, and this is in contrast to the presentation of a singularity as an inevitable technological event which is common among Ray Kurzweil's presentation, where the event that or the impact that we can have on it is minimal. Uh, the Singularity Institute exists because we think it's likely that the first entity to achieve superintelligence will be an artificial intelligence. And if so, then that means that that will be an artificial intelligence programmed by some human being. And we would like to be the people that develop the first human equivalent artificial intelligence, but that might not be the case. So the Singularity Institute is not – part of its original founding purpose was to create AI that self-improves to superintelligence and starts a chain reaction of self-improvement. And that's still one of our goals, but another one of our goals is to – merely analyze and educate about the singularity and also do research in areas of artificial intelligence that we consider to be open problems like uh, questions and decision theory. So we do research and education and conferences and produce media on the singularity. So would you say that you guys are more focused on the sort of research side or is it more on the sort of think tank kind of uh, theoretical side of things? Oh, those both sound like the same thing, don't they? I mean, <laughs> they're well, similar. Well, I mean, for me, the difference, at least in my mind, is, say, for example, the difference between theoretical physics and, I don't know, maybe applied mathematics. You know, you know to, to, to the outsiders, it may look to some degree that there isn't much difference, but people in the field would claim that, you know, some would say, well, we're actually doing actual science, whereas others are kind of theorizing about what we're doing? Right. Um, well, in theoretical computer, I'd, I'd say that a lot of the research we do would fall under co theoretical computer science. So it's not an experimental science, really, or it can be. Sometimes it's not. Um, but 
it involves creating toy models of uh, decision theories that we formulate and analyzing them. So I think you probably call that a theory for the most part. Another way of saying it is, for example, asking how do you feel about yourself? Do you consider yourself to be a theorist, a scientist, a communications officer? <laughs> oh, my, myself, I, I'm a communications officer, but um, I would be kind of in the minority among the Singularity Institute because we have a visiting fellows program with about 10 people that are all doing uh, or more of them are doing research, like maybe more than a little more than half are doing research in math and decision theory, and uh, the rest are involved more like in communications, which is uh, my role. That's very interesting. So maybe you should share a little bit with us about, uh, I don't know, the procedure or the, the kind of research scientists that, that you're looking for to join your team. Are you actively looking or how does that work? Uh, we are actively looking for researchers to join our team. Uh, we're interested in people who have high achievements in mathematics um, and theoretical computer science. Uh, we've actually recruited some visiting fellows from the National Mathematics Olympiad. Uh, we have some connections with the uh, organizers of that event. Uh, so we, we're looking for... Um, a lot of math experts primarily. And then on the other side of things, we're looking for good writers who can talk about the singularity to the public. And how is that process uh, going to work out? What is their function going to be and how do you recruit those people? Well, uh, let's see, those kind of people would basically be like me. So what I've done is I've written uh, popular articles on the singularity for magazine like Good Magazine, for instance, and I also am somewhat involved in the pseudo-academic sense. I'm gonna, I'm planning to give a presentation at the December Society for Risk Analysis meeting on uh, global catastrophic risks. Mm -hmm. So, but it's not. I'm not presenting as an academic. I'm actually presenting on public scholarship of global catastrophic risks, which means basically bringing what academics say to the public sphere. So, I, I consider myself to be. Uh, bridge between ac academics and the public. And how do we recruit people like me? Well, uh, we have a visiting fellows program. We put out calls for fellows, and uh, that's how we get a lot of our uh, personnel. That's fantastic. So anyone for our listeners out there who is interested, should they be contacting you, or is there a special recruiting page on the Singularity Institute website, or how would they go about uh, following the process? Oh, they can uh, contact me. Uh, my email is anisimov at singins.org. That's A-N-I-S-S-I-M-O-V at singins.org. That's great. And maybe right now is the, the time to take the next step and connect that to the upcoming Singularity Summit. I know that you guys have been organizing it for a couple of years now and that you've had great success previously. I've seen all the videos that you've posted and they're quite frankly amazing. I mean, they open enormous horizons, I believe, to anyone who goes and watches them and makes at least I was able to rethink and reconsider and perceive our whole world and our whole future in a different way after I started watching those videos. So I would greatly recommend them to everybody. Would you mind telling us... Um, what the topic is specifically of the upcoming Singularity Summit 
and how is that fitting into the general trajectory of your institute? Uh, the topic of the upcoming Singularity Summit is something that we actually haven't focused on very much in the past, which is uh, intelligence augmentation, as opposed to more focus of AI and robotics in the past. Uh, this is our fifth summit, actually, so we've been at this for you know a good while. And uh, the purpose of having a summit on intelligence augmentation is to make it clear that the Singularity Institute is not just focused on artificial intelligence, so that we're also focused on the possibility of human intelligence enhancement, whether it be through brain-computer interfacing or gene therapy or neurobio-nanotechnology. There's a lot of different paths that are being discussed, and a lot of the people that we've invited to this Singularity Summit are going to be talking about brain-computer interfaces or biochemistry um, which is different than the usual focus on robotics, although we'll also have speakers on robotics as well. I see. And uh, how do you, in, in your opinion, one of our, I mean, my tagline on the blog is, will technology replace biology? So if you were to answer that question, do you think that technology will replace biology? Hmm. And would you that know, be a positive or a negative thing, in your opinion? I think that for technology to really have a chance of replacing biology, it would need to take on a lot of biological features like the ability to spontaneously heal or to self-replicate and um, basically kind of what the qualities that people associate with like the word organic. I think that we'll see technology taking on a lot of those qualities over the next 10, 20, 30 years. So by the time that technology I, really, I do think that ultimately technology is likely to replace a lot of biology, maybe not all of it. Uh, I think that the biosphere will probably be kept intact for quite a long time, if not forever. Um, but I think that as technology can take on more of the qualities of biology and go beyond them even, like uh, all the richness of biology can eventually be replicated in technology even more so. And inspire even more wonder than like gazing down on a rainforest, for instance. Eventually, there'll be technology that lets us create landscapes and uh, mines like that. So I think that it will repl replace biology, but if while it replaces it, it will synthesize and absorb all of its good qualities. Because there's a large fear out there in many circles. For example, Ray Kurzweil says that sometimes that this may lead to religious or, or even extremist backlash. Uh, I mean, the birth of AI, for example, right? And uh, Richard Clark's uh, latest book actually uh, talked about that breakpoint and about the potential of different kinds of extremist religious groups coming together to create uh, attacks on our techno structure um, in order to oppose... Uh, any future uh, high-level technological development. I mean, in a way, that's the potential con conflict between sort of new Luddites and transhumanists, if you will, right? I mean, there's other people who have written books about the, the future wars and how the artilect could be uh, the source of that conflict, which may end up dividing humanity and cause all those uh, uh, 
you know, internal divisions, violence, and, and so on. Do you think that that's any reasonable scenario at all? Or do you think that that's an exaggeration and that we can uh, sort of avoid that? Uh, I think it, that it is possible, but um, but I think transhumanists should be careful not to overestimate their difference from, for instance, Christians and bioconservatives, because um, some, there's kind of like a mythology around what transhumanism wants to achieve. Like one notion of transhumanism is that we want to forcibly convert everyone on the planet to cyborgs. So when you say things like technology replacing biology, then that can give that mistaken implication where what most transhumanists really want is merely people to be able to choose a wider variety of options. And then there's kind of the assumption that over time they'd evolve more in a technological direction, but it's not like something that is predicated to happen to all at once really. So um, I, I think that there is a chance that if, if the uh, singularity takes a long time to occur, then there could be, a backlash and um, maybe even a war as a result of it. But I have a feeling that right up until we create artificial intelligence or a superior form of intelligence, people will be skeptical that it's possible at all. That's what Werner Vinge kind of speaks about the difference between the soft takeoff and the hard takeoff. So in other words, you think that we're more likely to have a soft takeoff or a hard takeoff? No, actually, the, what I was referring to is how long it takes from now, uh, not the period of time in which uh, between when it's obvious that the singularity oh, is going to happen and a singularity happens. So I think that uh, I personally think the hard takeoff is more plausible, which is why I think that there won't be much of a backlash because it'll happen quickly enough and won't make people angry enough. I think it will be seamless enough and smooth enough and uh, public friendly enough that there won't be a huge backlash. Yeah, I, I kind of think that that's the most likely scenario myself. And, and then where do we go from there? I mean, what happens to, to humanity if there's any such thing after that? Well, um, how do you see yourself personally? Let's start from there. How do we? How do you see yourself personally in any such environment? And and then what? What? How does that play around us for the rest of us? Well, um, if we created a super intelligence of some sort, then there would be a super intelligent entity, and the how I what would happen to me and to other humans would depend on what the goals of that entity were. And its goal would depend on how it was created. So if the first super intelligence is an AI that is, is obsessed with maximizing the value of some bank account, then we might all be in a bad position because maybe that AI could, or if it were an AI that was designed to prove some abstract mathematical theorem, perhaps it would convert the planet into computing resources to compute that theorem. If a Superintelligence didn't expressly have concern for humanity, then I think that we, all, all of us, could be at great risk. But if it did have respect for humanity, then I think that we would all be in a great position where we would be transitioning outside of just our species and creating a an alliance with 
other forms of intelligence on this planet, which I would see as a really profound and positive development. Do you think that uh, Ray Kurzweil's timeline is kind of roughly or very accurate? I mean, he says, if I'm not mistaken, that about 2029 would be the point that AI would pass uh, a Turing test of a sort, and then probably about the 2040s, uh, we would actually be into the singularity. Yeah, um, that sounds about right to me. It could be like 10 or 20 years before or 10 or 20 years after. Uh, I put more uncertainty on my prediction, but I think that his uh, guess is a good first guess. And what, in your opinion, would be the best benchmarks to know, for us to know that we are actually on the way to get there? The, the first two or three, maybe, if you could mention. Well, I mean, one thing would be artificial intelligence that can drive a car without human intervention. Um, but I think that would come a, a while, significantly before artificial general intelligence. Um, I, I mean, any AI that can develop its own approaches to solving a problem that weren't specifically programmed in by programmers, uh, for instance, developing their own scientific experiments, uh, anything like that I consider definitely to be a step on the way to AI. That along with um, artificial secretaries, that's something that will probably become available in the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anything that takes a human's job away completely is a sign that AI is taking over human or it's you know recapitulating human capabilities but isn't that what's been happening ever since the industrial revolution i mean ever since the first luddites were breaking down the the weaving machines that were being replacing that were replacing people yeah it is that's why like i can't say you know here are one or two concrete milestones where we could say ai is happening uh, i think it's a complicated thing and people would have to judge for themselves Mm -hmm. uh, is there any negative uh, indicators in that case then which would show the opposite that the singularity is not coming and is probably not very likely to happen at all oh I, I I mean for the singularity not to be likely to happen at all there would have to be either a limit on intelligence where human beings are the most intelligent possible beings that are possible or there would have to be some limitation on human intelligence where we can't come up with a better version of our own intelligence. So I wouldn't see those as very likely. Um, I, I, if they, what about the argument between the hardware and the software issue? Like we're very good at making faster and faster hardware, but the argument goes that it's the software that makes the hardware run. So, in other words, intelligence is the software rather than the biological or silicon-based uh, hardware. And therefore, we may get the faster and faster hardware, but unless we get the software right, we may not ever actually get there. Yeah, I completely agree with that argument. And uh, that's why I think that Kurzweil's analysis can be somewhat too simple, because it I mean, in his most recent book, he did uh, pay more attention to the software of intelligence, but I agree that uh, we might even have the hardware now, uh, and yeah. the, the barrier is software, definitely. Because he seems to be very optimistic about, you know, deciphering all the littlest elements of the brain and coming up with, you know, computational simulation of every single neuron 
and putting it all together, you know, and, you know, I'm exaggerating, but I think his timeline is about 10 years. So I think by 2020, he claims that that would be a fact already. By 2020, he claims that there will be uh, nanorobots in the bloodstream, but he doesn't claim that we have a thorough map of the brain. He claims that will happen in 2029. Because I think uh, IBM even has a, a project uh, which is supposed to culminate at 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's just a bunch of hype. And also, if I remember, Intel's... Uh, Chief Technology Officer spoke on the topic uh, very favorably himself and about uh, creating chips that would be brain implanted in a decade or so and how Intel was the, the company to produce those. Um, hmm. I mean, there are already chips implanted in the brain. They uh, are. I, I don't know if they're Intel produced or not, but I, I doubt it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that that's somewhat marketing and should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, and there could be uh, Intel chips in the brain in a decade or so, but that ne won't necessarily mean that we're on the cusp of the singularity, singularity or anything. What do you think is the best thing about the singularity? What is, what is the, the motivation or the inspiration behind your passion on your blog and on your daily work at the Singularity Institute? Making life better for humanity. That's that's fantastic. That's <laughs> I awesome. Mean, that, I, I never advocate a singularity that I thought would um, shock or ruin some group's way of life. So, for instance, I want a singularity to preserve the Amish people that live with like 18th or 19th century technology. I want them to be able to just live through it almost as if nothing had happened. So imagine a superintelligence with almost unlimited technological capability, but that use it only in a targeted way to benefit the people that wanted to be benefited from it. That's like the kind of superintelligence that I'd want to uh, contribute to the creation of. But isn't that a little bit idealistic? Isn't that kind of like this benevolent big brother sort of idea? I mean, in the sense that, Okay, there would be those super intelligent beings, obviously post the singularity, and then again, parallelly with them, there would be those, you know, humans that are basically stuck in time uh, forever. I mean, how would first those two groups communicate to begin with? And, and secondly, is it really going to be that benevolent, that that? Well, the, the purpose of the Singularity Institute is to make it that benevolent. Um, I think that there, that you, can, there you can either look at superintelligence as in it has a predetermined nature, it'll be a certain way. I think that there's a tendency to assume that superintelligence will be like a human being, like a mix of good and bad. But there's no reason why a superintelligence or an AI would need to be have the same mix of motivations that a human has. I mean, human beings are made to be selfish because we wouldn't have survived if our ancestors weren't selfish beings. But for a being that we create from scratch, we could potentially make a being that only cares about others and does not care about itself. So Altruistic. Exactly. and um, By design. Right. Altruistic by design. And I don't think that's something that will inevitably happen. I think that we need to come together and cooperate 
on AI research that's specifically oriented in that direction. Interestingly enough, though, in uh, Arthur Clarke's movie, Howl did not want to die. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that part, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think that, that uh, there are some qualities that would emerge in artificial intelligence. Um, basic AI drives, they're called. And I think that self-preservation would be one of them, but it wouldn't be for the same reason, the same source that humans self-preserve. Humans self-preserve because it's an instinct, but I can imagine an AI that self-preserves not because it necessarily values itself inherently, but because its goal structure, its goal system, uh, its goals can only be achieved if it continues to exist. So it values itself only as a sub-goal of achieving its goals. That's something that a lot of people in AI have written about and can easily imagine. So in that sense, you don't think that self-preservation is necessarily connected with self-consciousness? No, I think that's completely a confusion born of the fact that we assume any being that's possible will have a Darwinian nature, but Darwinian organisms are a unique type of organism. And yeah, there's no reason to assume any mind would be like us. Very interesting. Okay, um, would you like to say anything uh, to our listeners that you think is important to to be said, or if you want them to take one thing from our conversation tonight, both about uh, the Singularity Institute and about the Singularity in general, what would you like it to be? Uh, I think I'd like to say that the Singularity could lead to the extinction of all mankind and that we're all in personal danger over the next two, three, or four decades of being destroyed by an artificial intelligence that doesn't hate humans, but merely pursues its own goals and is indifferent towards humans in the same way that we humans pursue our own goals and many of us are indifferent to the animal world. And as a result, we've caused the extinction of thousands of different species of animals over the last thousands of years. And I think that it could be the same thing for artificial intelligence. So I don't think the singularity should be approached as something that is necessarily good. I think that it has to be approached carefully and that if we survive the singularity, it will because be because we took a lot of put a lot of effort into it and got lucky. So, if you were to rate our chances, what do you think our chances of survival are today, as you see them now? Uh, probably twenty five percent or less. Twenty five percent and less. So, I mean, my my impression is that you're a, a good optimist. How how is that? you know, connect with the optimism. I mean, if you're an optimist, how do you say that there's a 75% chance that you wouldn't survive? Uh, I'm an optimist. If we do program artificial intelligence to be cooperative with human beings and get it going on a self-improvement loop where that cooperation is preserved, then I think the future can be radically better than anything that anyone has ever imagined. But if we don't, then I think we could die. And I, I'm not necessarily an optimist. I'm a realist. So I think that both optimism and pessimism are inherently irrational ideas and that um, we should be realists all the way. <laughs> so you don't think that you're too rational about that? Do you think that we should also be emotional while making a decision, for example, about 
whether we want to enhance our biology or embrace the singularity or whether, like the Amish, we should stay on the sidelines and just passively observe. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think people should use their emotions to help them make decisions uh, if they want. But for the people that actually want to influence the way the singularity plays out, like myself and presumably you, since you're involved in the community, Mm -hmm. I think that we have a special obligation to be realistic so that the risks or the benefits aren't exaggerated because there's only going to be one chance to initiate the singularity that we have. And I don't think now is not the time for irrational optimism or pessimism. I mean, in the past, if we were rationally optimistic or pessimistic, we might have caused a few thousand lives to be lost. But now, if we're stupid about the singularity, we could cause billions of lives to be lost. We could actually cause the entire human race to go extinct if we're not careful. Yeah, I agree entirely with you. Um, I mean, I'm a very rational guy. And rationally, in my opinion, the only way for our species to survive is to embrace technology. And even though we only have one shot at it and getting it right, do our best at least. But that's rationally. Then emotionally, somehow, somewhere inside of me, I do have this fear of, okay, even if we get it right, then what? Wouldn't I be losing a part of me? Wouldn't I be losing a part of my humanity? Wouldn't I be losing something that's sort of precious or valuable or impossible to duplicate in the computational rational world out there (laughs) yeah i i think that this is like a false dichotomy like the idea between uh, the rational technologists versus the emotional environmentalists or luddites that's it's just it's an unnecessary dichotomy that's used by both sides to split them apart sometimes i think that you shouldn't compromise i think that if you're going to go for a singularity you should go for a singularity that has all the special aspects that you considered to define yourself as a human being. Leave nothing if, behind. Yeah, leave nothing behind. I think that if we don't completely encompass all that that's valuable about humanity, then the singularity wouldn't be worth it. Well, that's the singularity that I would like to be a part of. Great. I, I think that there is no conflict between rationality, or there is not necessarily any conflict between rationality and emotion, and that both of them can cohabit the same brain and intertwine harmoniously. That's beautiful. I think on that note, we could say thank you very much for Michael, who generously decided to give this interview today to Singularity Weblog. And it will be posted so that all of us can um, listen to uh, this interview and hopefully go and attend the, the upcoming Singularity Summit and join the community and be active towards uh, working towards a better singularity great yeah thanks for having me and i might as well plug the singularity summit now since you mentioned it absolutely Uh, it's on august 14th to 15th in san francisco uh you can register at singularitysummit.com we have 20 excellent speakers the price is 485 right now and the reason why the price is high is because we are putting a lot of time and money into the event to make it as high quality as possible. And uh, I encourage you to email me at anisimov at singins.org to ask any questions. And uh, maybe I'll see you in San Francisco in August. I really hope so, Michael. Thank you very much for this interview tonight. Sure thing.